We're so excited to share this series of podcasts with you. This summer, we've invited experts in the City and Guilds Foundations Network to help us explore how training and skills development can increase inclusion and diversity in our organisations. In this podcast, you'll listen to a brilliant, often emotive conversation exploring race at work and the importance of role models and allies in breaking down barriers to progression for black, Asian and ethnic minorities. everybody for joining and a huge welcome to people today. Um, I'm Sally Ely and I head up the City and Guilds Foundation and this is the series of events where we've invited experts from across our networks to examine the role that training can play in um, making our organisations more diverse and through and inclusive. And those uh, who are familiar with the foundation will know that a lot of our work is centered around removing barriers to um, skills progression and development, as well as shining a light on best practice. And in a way, that's very much what this whole series is about, learning and sharing. And we all want to make sure that that we all do something afterwards. So I'll return to that later. We all know that um, last year was a year like none other, and it was certainly an eye-opener in the fact that the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement shone a spotlight even more than ever on the inequalities and injustices which still exist. And at the same time, companies became more acutely aware of the fact that actually by including more diverse perspectives, they can actually get better results and have happier workplaces. And also as employers, we all have a moral obligation to create a fairer, more just society where people, everyone can have the opportunity to learn, develop their skills and contribute well to society. So this afternoon session, we're going to focus on race and the inequalities which exist there. And I'm delighted to be joined by our two experts today, Sophie Williams, uh, who is an anti-racist advocate and activist and the author of two books, Hello Sophie, Um, which I'm sure we'll come back to. The anti-racist ally is particularly good because I've read that one and it's excellent. Um, But she's also written Millennial Black as well. And Frank Douglas, who is one of City and Guilds trustees, but more importantly, in this context, he is the CEO of Keras Executive, which is a leading consulting firm on issues of diversity, inclusion, culture and leadership. So Sophie and Frank, Big welcome to you both. Thank you for giving up your time to come and talk today. Sophie and Frank are going to have a conversation because we're going to have a little bit of time at the end to where I'll be just stewarding questions to them. And then we'll wrap up talking about the pledge that we'd like everybody to commit to when it's finished. So over to you guys. So thank you. Thank you, Sally. And great to see you again, Sophie. Hi, how are you doing? I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm really looking forward to this. And um, it, it, it'd probably be helpful um, to give a little of our backstory um, to the audience um, before we jump into it. So if I could maybe, you know, start with, you know, your, your backstory and your, your, your background and um, I'll do the same and then we'll, we'll get going. So yeah, I, I presume you mean professionally. So my professional and personally, 
you know, if you could, <laughs> your life story. Who are you? What makes minutes. you tick? <laughs> um, so I guess my professional background is the majority of my career has been in advertising. I started at Saatchi and have sort of moved from sort of various agencies, big and small, um, throughout my career, um, mostly focusing in operations, um, project management, production, head of production, chief operating officer, chief financial officer. Um, in 2020, I had taken some time off in order to write um, Millennial Black, which was meant to be my first book, um, but that had to take a slight pause um, in the wider cultural conversation that we were having. Um, and so, yeah, I'm the author of both Anti-Racist Ally, which came out in, I think, October of last year, and Millennial Black, which came out this February. And uh, I currently uh, manage production planning at Netflix. Um, so I guess that's like a whistle-stop tour of, <laughs> of who I am and what I've been yeah. up to. Thanks. And we'll, we'll, we'll dig more into the, the books and, and who you are. I'm Frank Douglas, um, born in Jackson, Mississippi, um, raised in the South Bronx of New York, home of hip-hop. And I usually say go Yankees, but I won't do that this time. Um, I've spent most of my life in senior HR and executive roles. I've been on this side of the pond for the last... 20 years working in senior roles from British Telecom to Shell to Chief People Officer at Transport for London. I have the dubious distinction of being the only black male Chief People Officer in the FTSE 100 in the history of the UK. Um, that probably speaks more to the UK PLC than me, and we might get into that. And as Sally has said for the last four plus years, been running the consulting firm where you know we we count four of the five largest broadcasters as a clients, two of the three major music companies, two of the largest pharmaceutical companies. So we get around and and and, and we have a sense of, of of what it takes to change a culture um, in any organization, or, or, or we think we do. So so Sophie, let, 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 let's let's start with just the, the, the process of you know just what make you wanted to write a book, you know, so we'll get into the books, but what helped me, you know, with that, you wake up one morning and what happens? Yeah, absolutely. And if I can just go back to, let's go back to me for a second about who <laughs> I am. Yeah. Um, I forgot something that I'm trying to get better at doing every time I introduce myself. So I should have said, hi, I'm Sophie Williams and I use she, her pronouns. I just <laughs> want to try to be as sort of inclusive to the widest range of people that we can. And that includes making things easier for our trans and non-binary um, friends and colleagues, especially during Pride Month, but always and forever. Okay. Um, so the reason I wrote the book was, as I mentioned, I was chief operating officer in a London advertising agency and there was no one else who was like me. Yeah. And um, I need to acknowledge that although I am a black woman, I am an incredibly light skinned, light eyed, sort of, you know, very privileged, high proximity to whiteness black person. And so anything that I experienced would have been worse if I had been a dark skinned black woman, right. would have been worse if I'd been a dark skinned, disabled black woman. Like all of these intersections mean that although I do have some marginalized identities, I do still have a lot of privilege. So that being said, I was in this very white, very male, very middle-class industry. And I would find that whilst I had really good internal relationships, people would come externally. So vendors, clients, people coming for job interviews, whatever. 
they'd come and not really know what to do with me or what to make of me. So they would presume that I was the person who was in that space in order to make coffees or to take notes. Right. And whilst those are really valuable contributions, those were not what I was in that space to do. So people would come, you know, I very clearly remember making a cup of coffee for someone at the start of a meeting because it's a nice yeah. thing to do. <laughs> yes. And then being like, okay, great. And I'll just wait here until the people are ready. I was like, no, I'm, I'm the people. The people is me. Yes. And so I thought, okay, I'm young. I'm like maybe 29. I'm in a C-suite position. I need to do some reading, I guess, figure out how to get better at this because maybe I'm doing something wrong. And so I was looking for a book and I was able to find lots and lots of books about women in leadership. But when I looked at them properly, they all really seemed to operate them from the presumption of whiteness in the yes. reader. So to take Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In, for example, it's a great book. And in the work that she's done with the Lean In Foundation and with McKinsey since then, she's been able to provide really, really good granular data about diverse um, working experiences for women. But in the book, there is a real presumption of whiteness. Even the premise of leaning in, advocating for yourself, asking for what you know that you deserve, that hits different if you are from a group that is characterised as being angry or aggressive when you speak out, which so often Black women are. Yes. And so that's a long way of saying, I wrote the book because I needed to read it and couldn't find it. And I didn't know how hard writing a book was going to be. All right. Well, you've done well you. in both, both your books. So well, one of the stories I, I, I tell, um, Sophie, from my own life experience as a way of coming into one of the things you, you, you've spoken to, particularly um, in your TED talk, and congratulations for that being highlighted on the site. Um, as, in, in the days when we had pre-physical um, examinations, I was being appointed to an executive VP of HR for a FTSE 250 firm. I had to go get a physical, and the doctor was on Hans Place. And for anyone who knows London, it's kind of right across from the uh, the embassy and right down the street from um, Harrods. So it's very high rent space. And I went there early to get my pre-employment physical you know, I filled out the checklist, you know, I took 20 pounds off the weight and said I only drank two units a day and, you know, an exercise for an hour. You hand it in the clipboard. The doctor walks into the room with the clipboard. He looks around. I'm the only one in the room. And mind you, and I, I'm sure you can relate. I know that exercise. And he goes back out and, I, yeah, I didn't have to hear it. He went to the reception and receptionist. And I have no doubt what he asked. He, he asked her where's Mr. Douglas? <laughs> and she probably told him that is Mr. Douglas. And so the story goes, but what, 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 for me, that, 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 that uh, manifest was that it's not just in that situation, but in every organization, what I have found, every organization has an archetype of a leader. They have a sense of what a leader looks like, maybe what their pedigree is, what their accent is, what their backgrounds are. I wasn't the archetype that the hands place doctor was used to. And clearly many companies have their archetype that black women and people of color don't fit to. And so in, 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 in your TED talk, you talk about the, the glass, the, the cliff and, 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 and the glass ceiling. And, and to some extent, that's about an, an, an archetype. Um, speak to us a little bit about when they do defy that archetype and why and what those consequences tend to be. Yeah, absolutely. 
And I think a big a big part of inclusion that we don't talk about is the feeling of being expected. You weren't expected in that doctor's surgery. They didn't expect to see you. I wasn't expected in my role as COO, CFO. They didn't walk into the room and expect to see me. And yeah, both of those stories are examples of what happens when you've been brought into a place or you've worked your way into a place, whatever you are in that place, and people don't expect to see you there. And there's absolutely no point, and I always emphasize with businesses, there's absolutely no point in bringing people in to spaces where they are not going to be expected, where they're not going to be respected. So bringing people in is a start, but having um, having X number of women, X number of black or global majority people doesn't is the start of the conversation. It's not the end of a conversation because we have to look at how we're treating them when we're there. So to go back to your question about sort of the TED talk and the glass cliff. So the glass cliff is a situation that women and uh, non-white men essentially find themselves in when they break through the glass ceiling. So we talk a lot about the glass ceiling being there and how impossible it is to get through. But we do know that some people do get through, but we don't really talk about what that looks like. And so in researching for Millennial Black, I was looking at like, okay, so some some black women are black lady bosses. Great. What's that like as an experience? And what I found doing that research was um, the University of Exeter in the UK, the University of Utah in the US looked at um, FTSE 500 or Fortune 100 um, businesses over really long periods, like 14, 15 year time periods. And what they found was that businesses that were already in a consistent period of poor performance, whether that's financial, whether that's reputational, whether that's sort of, you know, um, market position, sort of whatever that was, those businesses that were already in a consistent period of five months of poor performance, those were the businesses that were more likely to bring in either racially marginalized men or any woman to their most senior positions. So what we're seeing is businesses bringing in people who aren't that archetypal leader when that business is already in a moment of trouble. And so that leader's chance of success is really limited because they're coming into a situation which is already in flux. And sort of, we can talk about that for for a long time, but the thing that I find the most interesting is how that then impacts the the leadership team just below that new hire. Because we can see that white men in the workplace, according according to the Lean In um, 2018 study, um, make up about 35% of like entry-level roles. But by the time you get to the C-suite, they make up about 65%. So they're the only group whose representation grows as they become more senior. They're the only group who sort of look up and don't see a ceiling, just see more opportunities. But when someone who doesn't reflect both their whiteness and their maleness is brought in to lead a business, what we find is that they self-report in a University of Michigan and Texas. <laughs> Good. Had to memorize that TED talk. <laughs> yeah. um, what we find is that they self-report feeling less able to personally identify with the business and feeling less invested in the business. And so their work performance goes down. And so when they have a leader who they weren't expecting, their ability to perform their job roles 
which is part of the overall business's success, goes down. And they also stop doing a really important part of any manager's job. They stop managing their teams. They stop setting them up for success. But not equally, they mostly stop managing, nurturing, developing anyone who is not, again, mirroring their whiteness and their maleness. And so in that way, we have a leader who's not set up for success because they've come into a situation that's already not great. Their senior leadership team has disinvested. And it's not great because we have this cohort that could be the next generation of unexpected, non-traditional leaders. But they're not getting the same investment in time, in nurture, in development as their white male colleagues. And so they're not getting the opportunities to go to that next layer. It wasn't a quick answer, but I have found that (laughs) there's no quick answer. No, there is no. It's a a great answer. But 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 it leads to two things in my mind, Sophie. So the first is, is that it leads to the paradox, if you wish, and, and, and as you know, and, and you speak to in your book, but well documented, is McKinsey's study that says, you know, for those companies um, that um, have women, you know, if you wish, they crack the, the, the gender issue, they're, they're 18% more likely to outperform their competitors. And if they crack gender and the ethnicity issue, they're 35% more likely to, to, to outperform their competitors. So you, you, you have a business case there that says, go look for diverse talent. Um, and, 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 and then you speak to, but once you get them, there's a challenge. So I want to pose that to you, is, is how do you square that circle? And, and then the other thing that it, that it points to on, on the individual level is when you're in that space, and I always say at some point, I should start a one and only club because most organizations have only one. Yeah. And indeed, when I do my work, I only ask, you know, who is the one? And everyone could usually name the one. How do you help that one then in that hostile situation, possibly not feel the imposter syndrome, just overwhelming them? And said, you know, the company's failing. I'm here. Why am I here? Chances are I'm going to fail. Am I really the right person for the job? So the the, the 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 paradox of um there's a competitive um reason to hire diverse talent in terms of outperformance but you, you say once we get there it's a challenge and then when we get there on an individual level what should happen and what can happen to to avoid us from then feeling we're an imposter and we really shouldn't be here okay I feel like that's a couple of questions. So let's do the imposter syndrome section second. How, how would you how would you wrap up that first part of the question? If companies are hiring diverse talent to outperform their competitors, but you're saying they're not supporting them once they're there, what's the solution to that? Okay, so the solution, a big part of the solution is to not view anybody as a diverse talent. Like in your, you sitting in your room, you are not diverse. Me sitting in my house, I'm not diverse. Yes. We are only diverse in the context of being brought into homogenous spaces. Yeah. And so an individual thing person can't be diverse. And so you have an obligation to make your teams, your workforces, your practices diverse and inclusive but I don't ever want anyone going out looking for diverse talent because it's not a thing 
we want diversity of thought, we want diversity of experience, but we can't treat an individual as a diverse thing. And I think once we decouple those ideas, um, it, it helps a lot because when we look for diverse talent, what we tell to the wider team already in place is we're not looking for the best talent. We're just looking for we're just looking for a black person. We're looking for a disabled yeah. person. We're looking for a yes. gay person. And so their automatic assumptions of that person's ability are limited because they think, well, she might not be the best, but she's the best black woman. He's yeah. the best black man. And so we have to, I think, stop having that framing in the conversations that we have. And we have to make sure that we have that sort of diversity of representation throughout the business, because that's what makes businesses more successful, more profitable. Yeah. It's not the fact that you have an underrepresented person in the space, it's that you have an underrepresented person in the space who's able to authentically express themselves because the, the profit driving, revenue driving piece of it isn't me sitting in the office. Yes. It's me being able to say, that doesn't ring true to my experience. Yeah. Or if you phrase it like that, the community that I'm part of will take this from it. So I think it's about not treating individual people as diverse and not thinking that getting them in the room is enough. We have to make sure that we have cultures of respect and inclusion and expectation where they're able to speak freely and authentically because that's where the value comes from. That's where the, the robustness, you have better arguments, you have yes. fewer people who have the same experience and you have more people who say, I'm not sure that that's right. How about yeah. this? Yes. And that's where the value comes from, I think. Okay, that's great. One of the things you, you, you clearly focus on um, in your book, Sophie, are the challenges and opportunities for Black women and the intersectionality that they, um, they face. The couple of things that jumped out in the book, um, and we could talk about the book all day, but in, in, I, I want to maybe focus on two or three things that really hit me, was one was um, you know, your, your chapter around the issue of the angry Black woman. And, and, and how that's managed, how, how, how you deal with that, and, and just where that even comes from. Can, can you help us and the audience understand your, 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 your perceptions on that? Yeah. So I think if you think about Black women on TV, go back maybe 10 years, and probably don't, you don't, probably don't even have to do that, but yeah. let's pretend that we've sort of made some progress, which we probably have to some degree. Think about the black characters, the black female characters that you are familiar with. They're almost never the main character and they are often like hooped earrings are coming out, you know, hold me back. We're going to have a cat fight. They're sort of part comic relief, part like scary. Yeah. They're provoked from nothing. They're promote, they're provoked from like peace to like furious physical rage in the drop of a hat yes. and for a long time that was the portrayal that we had of black women starting with Amos and Andy in America um I don't remember when like in the I could take a guess at the dates but I don't know you can get yes. everything's going to be fine um and that sort of perception early black and white minstrel shows were often white people's first experience of black people 
even though those were performed by white people in black makeup written by white people you know completely framed by a white experience or perception or expectation of blackness and so the angry black woman stereotype is something that really chases women chases black women throughout their lives both professionally and personally I was in a position where I was getting a promotion and into my contract was written something about like having an angry demeanor and I said please could you send me that document and they said yes oh they did but I feel like there's a problem here so we're going to have a quick read of it before we do (laughs) yes and they sent it to me with that word taken out but then I had to spend a really long time trying to educate people about why that wasn't an appropriate term and I think I think I'm not really answering your question actually um I think the angry black woman stereotype is really pervasive. I think it's lasted a long time. And I think it ra- it limits the range of emotions that black women are allowed to express yes. before they are immediately defined as being angry. And once we define someone as being angry, we decide that their opinions or viewpoints don't matter anymore. And I yeah. think that's the crux. That's the important part. We're not able to say this is wrong without being classified as being angry and that being dismissed rather than investigated. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does. And and, and related to that, that's that's kind of the the, the obvious manifestation of of being a, a, a black woman. The, the 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 more nuanced one was the party of book, which was a very powerful book and 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 uplifting. And then mm-hmm. I got to that part of it, and I, I I just wanted to cry. And if I was a friend, I would have hugged you. Um, and that when you talked about the bad vibe trip, um, <laughs> it, it's such bad vibes. Yeah. Um. So I was sent to our satellite office. Um to see what they were up to essentially and it turned out what they were up to was primarily either not coming to work or playing on wheelie chairs um, in the corridors once they were there and so I had to spend a really long and I shouldn't have ever agreed to take on this piece of work going to another office with people I've never met to sort of model best practice and be a bit of a spy in retrospect saying that back that's nonsense you don't agree to do that but I was, you know, in my late 20s, I had a C-suite role and I wanted to, you know, do do good at my job. And yeah. that, I think, goes back to the, the conversation that you asked earlier about imposter syndrome. When you are the only one, the only person like you, there's a huge pressure to do good at your job, to be the best that you can possibly be, because there's a real feeling that you're representing all people like you. And if you do something wrong, if you fail, if you make a mistake, you might have shut the door for anyone like you coming up ever again. And so there's this huge pressure to overperform, which we don't put onto other groups. Yes. But anyway, I was there. It was trash. I hated it. <laughs> and I, you know, had to make this big report about what was going on and present it. And, you know, I, I cried every day and, yeah. you know, I would try and talk and they would just start a conversation over me. They would like rude, rude people. Anyway, so I got back <laughs> yeah. and um, I sat down with the two founders of the company to say like, okay, here are my findings. And they said, 
we'll have a look at that in a second. We are quite disappointed, though, that the feedback from the team um, that we sent you to spy on was that you had um, a bad vibe. And so let's talk about that instead. And which meant I never got the chance to present my findings. And when I said, what's that based on? What are the instances? What are the, like, is it what I'm saying? Is it how I'm saying it? Is it like, there was no context. There was nothing to back it up. It was just like, vibes off. Yes. And that meant that all of the work that I had done had been completely undermined. Yeah. Wow. Bad vibes. So to round that off, you asked the question in your book of one of the individuals you were interviewing, and I don't remember their name, but basically you asked them about the concept from Michelle Obama, when they go low, we go high. In that situation and other situations you find yourself in, which do you apply that or when they go low, do you go low? I don't know where I go. Yeah. I don't think I have like a set mantra. So in the book, I asked um, Danielle Scott Houston about her feelings about when they go low we go high and she was at pains to say how much she loves Michelle Obama um so it's no no shade in that direction but just that that's a really hard standard to live up to and I think that again speaks to sort of the dehumanization of non of marginalized people we have to have you know strict rules of how we engage and other people are allowed to be human. Other people are allowed to be upset by this or angry by that or disappointed here or, you know, happy there. And we have to have sort of rules and structures and guidance to be allowed to express our ranges of emotion. So, no, I don't think I do always go high. No, some people okay. are rude. <laughs> yeah. Do you? Do you have like a set? How do you handle it? I, 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 don't, I don't have a, a, a I'm, I'm like you, it, it's situational. Um, but I try not to necessarily go high as a default setting. <laughs> I think sometimes you have to address the issue head on and, and direct. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, turning the other cheek is not always my, my approach to life. So, yeah. No, because we're people. Like, <laughs> yes. we, don't, we shouldn't have to always just accept everything and try and build it up to be better. No. And, 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 and so, Sophie, you know, one of the things I've seen um, in, in, in my professional life inside corporate world and outside the corporate world is that we talk a lot about inclusion. However, in, 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 in my view, there are actually very, very, very few companies doing inclusion, my clients notwithstanding. Most of them are actually doing assimilation. And the difference is, you know, assimilation is this is who we are. This is how we do things. These are our processes. And now we're going to bring this new feeder pool of talent, multi-generational, multi, um, you know, different gender orientations. We're going to bring them along as quickly as we can with our programs, initiatives to kind of fit who we are. That's assimilation. And quite honestly, that's what most companies are doing. The flip side is inclusion, which says we're going to actually challenge how we lead we're going to challenge our HR policies, our engagement strategies, and we're going to flex all that to meet this, this new pool of talent that we've brought into the organization. Very few companies are doing that. That's a preamble to say, where, where does that leave the person of color in that issue of assimilating versus code switching, um, being yourself or just being accepted? 
Um, you know, how, 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 how would you advise black women and people of color in terms of, you know, that, that whole assimilating, assimilating versus being myself and for all the better words that that may have in, from a corporate or professional point of view? How do you navigate that? Yeah, I mean, I'm not the best person for this because I am... Oh, you're the only one I got here. So (laughs) so we got to go with what I got. But let me tell you why. Because I have always said that I am very bad at picking my battles. There is no way that I'm going to work where I am spending the majority of my day as someone else. Yeah, I do not have the energy for that. And if that's what... And I spoke to some people in Millennial Black um, about that. And some people were saying that they had done that earlier in their careers and other people were saying if that's what you need to do to be able to feel that you can progress and you can sort of have the career and life that you want then that's absolutely fine and that's your choice to make and it absolutely is however anyone needs to navigate this patriarchal (laughs) white supremacist world then fine do what you need to do to get by But I want to challenge businesses to stop with the need for people to code switch, need to assimilate. And so I agree. And like you said, your clients notwithstanding, my current employer notwithstanding, (laughs) not many businesses are doing that well. I'm hiring at the moment and I am very clear to the people who I'm working with that I am not looking for a culture fit for my team. I am looking for someone who is additive to the culture of our team, someone who brings experiences and viewpoints and knowledge that we otherwise don't have. And I think businesses really need to switch from, is it someone who I want to hang out at the pub with? Is it someone who reminds me of me? Because there's a thing called the fluency heuristic. And that means that we perceive information as more beautiful when it is something that we feel familiar with. And that can even be when it comes from someone who feels familiar to us, someone who reminds us of ourselves. And so when we think information is more beautiful because it is easier to take on, we also believe it to be truer. And so the fluency heuristic means that we really risk naturally gravitating to people like ourselves and wanting to hire someone who you can have a chat at the pub with or whatever the equivalent of that is now covid is ruining everything yes <laughs> um but like we were saying earlier that diversity of thought that diversity of experience that empowerment to say this community will understand this in this way or this is not true to my experience that is where the benefit of having diverse teams is so if we bring people in if you can say like you know x percent of my team is um gay x percent of my team is women x percent of my team is black and global majority people i don't know why you say that this is good for business it hasn't changed our business at all the chances are it's because you're not treating them as themselves You're treating them as a replica of the people you already had and they're feeling the need to conform to that. And so you're actually not getting the richness of that experience and thought. You've brought these people in and you've forced them to be like you and you've not got the benefit of that. Yeah, thank you for that, Sophie. Topic close to my heart is the US versus the UK. 
I straddle both. There are two countries separated more than just a common language. <laughs> Clearly, you know, not, not, not speaking of your current employer per se, but they're a US-based organization. And, 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 and so the, the, the question to you is the conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion in the UK and the US, can you compare and contrast for us? You actually might be better placed to share what you think here. Well, I, I, I think the US is probably more, um, well, they are more further along in the journey. It's a more direct conversation. It's kind of in the air. Race is kind of in the air in the US. Um, you know, I, I think of companies, they're not a client, but I think of companies such as JP Morgan, where, you know, there's a head of black talent. You know, they just call it what it is. <laughs> you know, it's not multicultural progression or some, you know, very nuanced. You know, um, Jamie Dimon has a, has a head of black talent development. Um, here, you, you know, you, you, you would never see that. Um, in the U.S., it, it, it is very normal almost these days for the chief diversity officer to report directly to the CEO of a U.S. organization. And that even has an added level to it because of the corporate governance in the U.S., many of the CEOs are also chairpersons of the board. So you have the chief diversity officer reporting to the CEO, chief um, um, chairperson of the board. There's only one FTSE 100 company here um, in the UK, and that's ITV, which happened about four months ago, um, that has a chief diversity officer reporting into the CEO, one out of 100. Um, and so, you know, what, 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 what are we missing here in the UK? Why, you know, I would just say, why don't we believe the data? Um, and so on those little touch points unto themselves, you know, that, that just speaks to, it, it's just, it's not a conversation here. Um, CEOs in the UK are still struggling to understand that diverse teams are a value creation lever. Yeah. Um, and that diverse teams are part of eliminating your organizational blind spot. Um, and that's really how, you know, when I, when I sell it, if you wish, to a CEO, I sell it as organizational blind spots. Yeah. Um, because that's really what your role is strategically, is to eliminate your organizational blind spots. And, and, and having a diverse team, you know, eliminates or at least minimizes that from happening. So, yeah, they're, they're separated by, you know, a different language. I've only learned to say aluminium after the last two years. But that's good. You got it. Yeah, but the word is aluminum. But, you know. Mm -hmm. but that, <laughs> okay. Yeah, a, right. I thought we were getting on. <laughs> yeah. um, but I was right. Yeah. You are much better yeah. placed to answer that question. And the idea of organizational blind spots, that's such perfect phrasing for what I've been sort of, you know, spending words and words in this conversation <laughs> trying to explain. I've written that down. Yes, <laughs> great. So if we're, our, our time's running out. So there, there, there's, there's two things I, I do want to make sure that I and, and, and the participants get your, your, your thoughts on, and that's the role of allies and, and, and role models. Um, clearly, you know, um, I think it'd be great to see where they fit into this whole puzzle. Yeah. So I... My first book that came out, although not my first book that I started writing, is um, Anti-Racist Ally, um, because allyship was a conversation that um, I found myself in some ways at, a at the centre of um, in 2020. And I felt like if I suddenly had this platform, I should use 
the the wider platform of publishing to sort of push that conversation forward. And so I think allyship can be really valuable. But in order to be a good ally, I think we need to understand intersectionality. We need to understand that people can be both privileged and marginalised at the same time because we're made up of more than one facet. And so I um, marginalised because women are seen as less important than men in a patriarchal society. Blackness is seen as less important than whiteness in a, in a white supremacist society, like all of these things. But I'm also very privileged to have a very high proximity to whiteness, which um, again, in a white supremacist society is uplifted. I am in a heterosexual relationship. I am able-bodied. Like all of these things are areas where I don't have to struggle. And I think a privilege is just an area where you don't have to struggle, but other people do. And once we can reclaim and rephrase privilege away from everything in your life has been easy to, there are just some parts of your life where you haven't had to struggle then we can allow people to identify those privileges and start to use those as allies to uplift other people. And so I really think that areas of privilege are areas of responsibility. So the reason I'm willing to have these conversations, the reason I'm willing to write these books and to be active on social media and do all of these things is because I recognize that I have a privilege. And in that privilege is a responsibility to bring in other people's voices, to have these conversations, to make these frameworks, to try to make something better. And so I think allies, once you recognize your privileges, you can recognize the spaces that that means you can access that other people can't access. And once you know where you can get to that other people can't, you can just challenge yourself. How can I bring in, how can I amplify the messages of the people who can't get into the spaces that I'm in? And once we do that, we can start, one, to try to open up those spaces for other people, and two, to bring their messages in for them when they still can't get into those spaces. So at least we can be an amplifier, we can be a conduit for those messages until those people can get into those spaces. And I think that's so important to use our access to create access for others. That's a great message, Sophie. And and my last question, because I I know Sally's going to come back on, and it's the one I got a big kick out of in your book, because... I'm lonely. I've been here 20 years. It's hard to make friends. And 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 so what I what I what I really resonated with me in your book was your lady gang. And you know, because again, it's lonely there sometimes. So tell us about the role, you know, of the lady gang, which is all, you know, kind of an ally and role models of your own making. But yeah. you know, let, 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 let's close with the with the lady gang, um, you know, its concept. You can be in my lady gang if you want. Yeah, well, I would I would love to be. Perfect. Great. You've just made friends. Of course, I'm going to say aluminum, though, and, and cookies. Okay. Well, being in a lady gang is not about agreeing with everything, but it's just about, you know, chances to chances to yeah. better educate one another. <laughs> yes. um, so just, I can see that Sally's waiting, so just super quickly, the lady gang is, I think, the best idea I've ever had. And it's just about looking, it's about going back to that conversation we had um, earlier about oneness, about being the only person like you in a space. And that, as you say, can feel lonely and that can feel really pressured. And we also see from various data points that black women 
in particular report feeling like they have a lack of mentors and sponsors in the workplace. And we know that sponsorship from a senior person in a workplace can make a fundamental difference in someone's ability to progress in their career. So if we can't access those things through standard network models, we can make our own. And that's what the lady gang is. Yes, I don't know who you are, but yes, you can join the lady gang. We'll have to talk about it later, though. Um, The lady gang is the group of people who you think are the most amazing. And it's really important. The name is misleading. It cannot just be female identified people. Because the idea of the lady gang is to have a group of people who invest in you as much as you invest in them and who help you as much as you help them. So if your lady gang is all people who look like you and who think like you, who act like you and who society treats in the same way that they treat you, you'll never spot your race pay gap. You'll never spot your gender pay gap. You'll never spot the fact that, you know, Uh, a traditional hire has been promoted three times while you've been in the same spot. So your lady gang are people who know everything about your professional life, when, what your salary is, when you were last promoted, what your career goals are, and they keep you on track and you keep them on track. We can make our own networks when the existing networks aren't available to us. And before we go into questions, just like the final thing is, about how you how you create your lady gang, you look around and you see the most amazing people in the spaces that you're in. And instead of thinking, I'm going to kill them, there's only space for one of us and it's going to be me, we can think, I'm going to collaborate with them because they are incredible. And people know you by the company that you keep. Yeah. And if you keep amazing company, that says great things about you. If you have amazing people who mention your name in rooms of opportunity or who say good things about you behind your back, that is going to exponentially change how you are perceived, how you can develop and how you can help other people to develop. So I love the Lady Gang. Welcome to the Lady Gang. Thank you. I I can't wait for the next gang gathering. Sophie, it's been a pleasure, powerful, insightful, perceptive. I've enjoyed it. I hope the audience has. And I know they have some questions. I'll turn it over to Sally. Thank you, Sophie and Frank. It's, yeah, gosh, so much. So much thought is going through all our heads, I'm sure. So let me try and make some sense of these then. So we have a question. How can I, as a Black woman, say no without me being told I'm angry and aggressive? My son's school's always saying I'm overreacting when I try to inquire why things are happening to him. Even when I've not raised my voice until now, I don't know how to confront issues or how to change myself to fit in. Sophie, do you want to Yeah, it's really hard and it's really sad. And it's really important that you know that that, you know, without sort of going into the detail and knowing the nuance, that is probably not about you. If you are confident that you are presenting yourself in a way that you would with a friend, that you would with someone who you care about, then what we often get is people projecting their presumptions about what blackness and femininity mean. And when we don't, and both of those are positions that are expected to be subservient. And when we don't meet that subservience on both levels, we're often classified as being angry. The best thing that I have found to to do in those scenarios is to have an ally and 
it shouldn't be that we need to bring other people into these spaces to have these conversations alongside us. But having someone who is there who can say, you know, actually, no, the way that she phrased that was really acceptable. Like, I find that really useful having um, having someone who's on your side and who is I, I take my partner to the doctor with me because we know that black women are not um you know, listened to as easily when it comes to like medical intervention. And so I have found that I can get better treatment if I have someone who is representing both whiteness and maleness in that space. And I wish I had an answer that wasn't bring someone else, but I think that might be your best bet. But Frank, do you have any thoughts? No, I, I leave. I, I think that's the best answer <laughs> so you can give us. It's no silver bullet. It's not easy. Okay, thank you. So, Frank, how about you with this one? Do you have any high-level tips on engaging our ethnic majorities, white males, to create a more inclusive environment for our ethnic minorities? Yeah, that, that's that's a, that's a great question, um, Sally. And 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 part of it is that um, race is an uncomfortable conversation in the UK, and so we 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 have to start from that basis. You know, as as I say. You know, every white man knows a white woman, <laughs> you know, sister, mother, um, whatever. So so women are part of, of their professional orbit and their personal orbit. Very few C-suite executives know a black man. Um, they're not part of their professional orbit or, 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 or a black woman, for that matter. They're not part of their professional orbit and they're less likely to be part of their personal orbit. So that that distance creates a discomfort because it's an unknown and, and you create stereotypes the, the more distant you are. So I, 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 I think it's a matter of just trying to have authentic conversations around those lived experiences that people have and, and understanding that the messages hit people differently. I mean, you know, it, 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 it's it's a very nuanced thing, the issue of privilege and how it impacts and, and, and creates a barrier. So I was working with a client and one of their high potential um, ethnic minority staff um, was, was, was taken aback because they, they were asked to go have um, lunch in the, let's call it the executive dining room. And he got there and what he realized was, and it sounds silly, but it, it was impactful to him, is that the senior executive um, cut his banana, the ethnic minority person ate his banana. You know, you get a banana at home, you peel it, you put it in your mouth. And he, he's sitting at the table and someone has a knife and fork and they're cutting their banana and that's how they're eating it. And so there's just a big gap in terms of the lived experience is there's a big gap of people recognizing their privilege and how their privilege impacts people. And so it's along with an answer, but there's a lived experience gap and arbitrage that's at play that has to kind of be lessened and there's no silver bullet but part of it is trying to have safe spaces where those conversations can start taking place and people understanding the lived experiences and their lives and the differences um, of, of in their lives can i would you mind if i just jump in for two seconds oh, completely back up everything that was just said but I would like to challenge on some language I really want to be clear that white men are not the global majority at all white people are not the global majority and so the the term that I have found to be most useful when talking about 
non-white people um, has been black and global majority because that's what we are. And when we say that we're a minority group, that's just completely misleading. So I really like the term, which I was quite late to learning, black and global majority. And I feel like if we can recognize the importance of language and we can try to frame some of um, our conversations like that with that sort of mindfulness going forward, I have found that's really helped in my in my discourse. I think that's a really important point, actually, that whole thing about language and us all thinking so much more um, than we do and, and unlearning what we've learned. Something I heard earlier around the this whole thing for years and years, it's all oh, let's get someone to fit, to join, to fit our culture. And actually, of course, that does, that's just going to get you more of the same, isn't it? So, but we've learned that. So it is so much of this is about relearning. And Frank, I know we were talking about that at the beginning, you know, sorry, it's, I'm meant to be doing the questions, aren't I? Sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay. Um, what are some of the practical steps organisations could take to stop their habit of pressing people to assimilate rather than to let letting people to be who they actually are? Frank, <laughs> want to take that one first? Because you mentioned the... I mean, Sally, that that, that is... I mean, it, it, it become, I mean that, that's what my business is about, and it's not an easy thing because at, at, at the most basic level, as I tell people, they say, what do you do? I mean, what, what, what I do is I challenge the myth of meritocracy, and that is not an easy thing. There are the, the, the institutions, the processes, and you know, my HR colleagues and their processes and leadership and their belief that they are running the best and most equitable organization in the world with the strongest values, you're challenging that myth of meritocracy. So you, you have to have two choices. You either believe that white, heterosexual, able-bodied men are the most talented people on the planet, or you have the choice saying, well, there's something happening here. The noise of signal ratio is wrong, and there's something that has created this, 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 this imbalance. And so, the, the, the challenge is, and it's not an easy one, is for a company to have the intellectual curiosity, the humility, and it's not something I think you can easily do from a grassroots level, quite honestly, to, to take that step back and say, we're actually going to question the myth of meritocracy. I, I, I you know, it, it, it's what I do, and I've started drinking more since I've been doing it. Um, because you're, you're challenging the very essence of the institution. And so you, you need help with it. You need allies at the senior level. You need allies at the grassroots levels. You may need allies externally. Um, but, it, you know, a, as we've seen in the last year, companies really don't do things unless they have to. You know, how many companies were piloting flexible working 18 months ago? Piloting, you know. Well, look what happened when they had to. Um, how many companies avoided the conversation of race 18 months ago? Now, because they have to. So companies don't just change because, you know, it says you should. It, it, it's very difficult. I, I don't have an answer for that one. But the point is you're challenging the myth of meritocracy and the whole institution is built around protecting that. Thank you. Well, 
Do you know, I think we need to wrap up, actually, because I need to bring us back to um, look at the pledge we want everyone to think about after this. But can I just start by saying thank you so much, both of you, for sharing your insights today. And there is so much for us all to think about and go on to learn about. So, um, you know, huge thanks. I can just see by the chat, not that I've been able to read it because I'm rubbish at being able to read questions and chat at once. But there's obviously a lot of um, people, you know, have a lot to say. So that's great. Yes, we would just like to to make sure that we, we want to see what happens after this. This is the beginning of, of our journey of learning more and doing more. Um, and so we'll be sending something out to you after this about what you are doing or what you want to learn more about and how you can how we can all do more and um, make you know achieve more together. So uh, do look out for that and please do sign up if you're interested for any of our further events. So thank you very much. Have a good rest of Wednesday. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can listen to the next podcast in which we'll explore how employers can support people with lived experience in prison and play a positive role in our society. You can also watch the webinar series and pledge your support at www.cityandguildsfoundation.org.